so as I said, New York Insight is a, is a place that values community deeply. And we have, uh, we've been offering these teachings now for 17 years. And uh, we've been really offering the teachings in as open and um, generous and open-hearted way as we possibly can. Uh, counting on the support of the community to keep New York Insight going. And so when you come here, you are literally joining a stream of giving and generosity that has, is really uh, grounded in the understanding that we are all dependent on each other. That without everyone else in the world or without others in the world, we could not survive. And so New York Insight in a way is a, is a model for that. That when, we, when you come here for a sitting group, uh, we offer it freely. And we also ask that you participate, we hope that you will participate in cultivating the practice of giving and generosity as uh, we often say, it's a, the first practice that the Buddha teaches when taught when a student came to see him. And he would not offer any other teachings until he felt that the student had sufficiently practiced generosity in such a way that his or her heart was open to hearing the teachings. And so we've endeavored to um, to maintain that tradition as best we can in an economy of exchange. We are not an economy of gifts, you may have noticed. Uh, so we hope that you will find some benefit in these teachings and that you will wish to support them, uh, whether financially or by volunteering in any way that you can to, uh, to keep these programs going. We have um, two paid staff, and Sebene is here. She's the executive director, a really excellent executive director, I might add. And, uh, and Dalila, who is her deputy. And everyone else, everything else that we do is, uh, is done on a volunteer basis. So please consider uh, supporting us by giving when you come to these events. And tonight, whatever you give and whatever you offer will be shared by New York Insight and Rosemary and I. And uh, whatever uh, other generosity you can offer, whether by becoming a member, which is an important thing because we value you not only for whatever donations you give, but also your membership in New York Insight really says that you do value these teachings and you do count yourself as among the, uh, the, this very precious community. So whatever you offer, we, are, we gratefully receive. And um, please don't feel pressured, but consider, uh, consider opening your own practice of generosity and giving. It will be of great benefit to you, I promise. Okay, thank you. So, as you know, when I come on Tuesday nights, I like to 
create a Dharma talk with you by your questions. And um, I, I, I try to operate on the uh, assumption, which I think is a valid assumption, that there is a lot of wisdom in you and that it's not that you're the student and I'm the teacher and I've got all the wise answers and you, you know, you don't. But really to understand how you can develop your own wisdom, which is the most important part of these teachings and practices. And it, it really is um, important that you take that in deeply and that you, um, that you understand that the teachings that are offered, these beautiful teachings that come for, that are 2,600 years old, that these teachings are in a way, um, a, a, a way for you to awaken your own wisdom and your own compassion. That the, the intent is that you hear the teachings, that you reflect on them, and that you put them into practice. And only after you've put them into practice and determined by that practice that they are of benefit, that they produce wholesome results, they produce skillful results, only then do you take them in as your own principles, as what you value. And that anything before that, so just hearing the teachings and saying, yes, 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 that's great. Oh, that sounds really good. Oh, I love the way you say that. Rather than that, that you meet them and you receive them with deep curiosity and, with, and that your way of um, developing and cultivating your wisdom is by patient observation of what happens when you begin to practice as the teachings uh, direct. So when, we ask, when you ask questions tonight, uh, most of the time what I'll be doing is asking you back a question so that we can begin to develop that muscle of investigation for ourselves. And um, maybe I'll learn a few things from you just as you'll learn a few things from me. And that's the essence of um, Kalyanamita or um, spiritual friends. And so I invite whatever questions you have, whether they are about the practice technically or um, about applying these teachings in daily life or about the teachings themselves. So please feel free and invited and welcomed to um, ask what you, what's on your mind. And I'm curious why I'm not more compassionate towards someone who is um, very fearful of me. Very? Fearful. I'm sorry, I can't. Fearful, afraid of me. Fearful of you. Yes. Uh -huh. And so instead of feeling compassion, I find it annoying. Instead of compassion, I'm sorry for I some... find it annoying. Annoying. Or, yes, it's sort of aggravating, you know, that she's so afraid. Um, it's someone that works for me, mm -hmm. and 
uh, I've just become, you know, I thought, oh, why don't I have more compassion for someone who is afraid? Mm -hmm. And that's, you know. So what is compassion? And why do you want it? Um, why do I want it? Really, to help myself. What do you think compassion is? Acceptance of the other. Acceptance of the other. Does it go beyond that? Well, to recognize um, The spirit of the person. I'm sorry. To recognize the spirit of the person. To recognize the fear of the person. Yeah. Yes. Spirit. The, spirit. the spirit of the person. I don't know why I'm having yeah. the spirit of the person. Okay. Mm. So, what do you think? So, do you know what etymologically the word compassion is? What the etymology of the word no. compassion is? No, I don't. So. Did you take Latin at all in school? I did. It was quite a while ago. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, do you know what calm means? I don't remember. You're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> no, I don't remember. Calm means with. With. Yeah. And do you know what passion is? The deep emotion. The deep uh, The actual etymological origin of know. the word passion is no. suffering. Ah. So the word compassion means with suffering. So does that give you a hint about what compassion means? Yes. What does it mean? To, I, um, to understand, to to oh, empathize yeah. with another person's suffering. Okay. So you're getting close, so you're getting warm, <laughs> although I don't think we need to be warmer tonight. But empathy is close, but it's, it's not quite. It, empathy kind of rubs up against compassion. Right, yes. But empathy, I don't have the word for okay. it. You know. So in, in Buddhist thought, compassion is the fluttering of the heart in response to suffering. Mm. So the calm and passion with suffering is the, is the heart moves when it encounters suffering. But it moves when it encounters suffering, not in a kind of um, unequal way. So we're not up here kind of saying, oh, yes, 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 I can, I, I can empathize with your suffering. But we're really kind of deep in the trenches with it. And we're actually knowing what it's like to suffer. Is there anybody in the room who doesn't know what it's like to suffer? Because I want to meet you. All right, so put your hand up so I can talk to you later. All right, so we know what suffering is, right? Why? Because we're human beings. Yes? So if we're human, if we're born into this human body, and I imagine any creature really knows what suffering is, 
So when we meet that suffering, the heart, if it's a heart of kindness and not one of cruelty, flutters in recognition, really. It's a kind of beautiful thing. And it's a, and in a way, it's, it's a beautiful thing because it's, a, it's an alternative or an option that our culture doesn't encourage us to have. So when it naturally happens, we, we can recognize it. We can recognize that feeling of uh, knowing our own suffering and then knowing the suffering of another. So what do you think would um, allow you to recognize the suffering of this being who is fearful of you? And what do you think you need in order to engage in this way and to recognize the option of compassion rather than annoyance? So what do you think you need in order to shift? And, and th you know, this is, this is not just a question for you. It's a question for every single one of us in the room because when we're not able to have compassion for the suffering of others, we suffer, right? So you're asking the question, and you may not have asked it in that way, but you're asking the question because you suffer by being annoyed at her fear, right? So, so already you're in this dance of suffering together, yes? So is that a, is that a place, do you think, where compassion can arise naturally from the ground of that suffering. It hasn't so far. I mean, I'm struggling with it. I think it's getting better. What do you think you need? So, okay, so, so you're telling me about the past, yeah. but you're asking me about the future. Yeah. What about right now in this moment, is it possible, as you think about this person, to allow the heart to flutter from her, her, the agony of her fear? Is, it, is there even a small opening in your heart? Yes. Okay, yes. so that's something to work with, right? So you, we all start with this small opening a lot of the time what we're trying to do in practice is to like get the whole enchilada right away, right? Like I must be this really great big Mother Teresa queen of, of compassion, right? But can we just find that small opening in our hearts, just a the tiniest of openings where we can feel something for the suffering of another being. So if you're looking at it as fear, as her fear and how annoying that fear is, maybe it's really hard. But if you can understand suffering from your own perspective, then you can understand the suffering of all other beings because it's not different. And if you can, if you can find that place where you understand suffering in your own being, you can understand it in someone else's being then the heart can flutter. The heart can open, even if it's just the smallest, the tiniest of openings, and then it's possible to start to shift. 
and it's a practice. It's not, you're not going to jump from here to there. It's step by step by step by step by step. So it's been my experience that, yes, is this better? Okay. Um, it's been my experience that it's really only in times of rather intense hardship when I'm really down, you know, due to some experience, circumstances, that my heart is open in a way that I feel ready to, um, you know, commit to a spiritual practice, to grow in compassion. Um, and, you know, it, it feels very spiritually purifying. What and feels very spiritually purifying? What's that? What feels very spiritually um, purifying? The opening that's created by suffering. And almost invariably what happens is that, you know, life moves on, I get sort of comfortable, and um, that sort of openness uh, and devotion to, you know, uh, growing spiritually um, uh, fades, sort of calcifies, and I might still continue with the practice, it might fall off entirely, but it's not quite as, it, I don't quite feel as fertile um, as I do in those times of hardship, and um, I don't necessarily feel like I should feel that fertile all the time. I just was interested in your feedback. What do you think? You think you should feel that fertile all the time? No, probably okay. not. So that's a good start. Okay. Right? Because, really, because we, you know, we get these expectations of ourselves. Like, you know, I should be the full moon, thirty days of thirty days a month, right? But if we look at the moon and we look at the tides, we see that things are constantly moving and shifting and changing and that we, we get full and then we come back around and we get empty and we get full again and then we get... So we're constantly moving in rhythm and nature is everywhere we look, there is rhythm, right? But it may be a little bit of an issue and I'm wondering if you're... If you're I think you must be seeing it by asking this question. If there's an issue of having to wait until things are really a problem before we start to practice. What do you think the issue might be? Um, I, think, I think that's it. Um, you know, many times uh, I've seen this cycle repeat itself. Yeah. Um, but here's the issue, yeah. okay? The issue is that if we wait to practice when things are really difficult, we never get a toehold. Because it's the practice when things are really good where we have the spaciousness and the time and the patience to develop in such a way that when the stuff really hits the fan, we have already practiced. If we try to practice when everything is unstable and things are moving quickly and we're really suffering and it's really hard and we're feeling victimized and all of that, then the practice never really gets grounded. It never gets deep. Because also, we're doing it with an agenda, right? The agenda is, I want things to get better because I can't stand it when things are not good. But I, I gave a teaching last night that may be particularly appropriate here, and that's a teaching from a, from a wonderful Rinpoche, a, a wonderful Lama called Patrul Rinpoche, 
who said that um, we should recognize the utter hopelessness of um, having aversion to adversity. That there's absolutely no point in having aversion to adversity because adversity is going to come, right? But he, does, he doesn't stop there. He actually goes further and he says, and you must develop cheerfulness. Cheerfulness, he said, in the face of adversity. Right? And then he says, this is not an easy thing. <laughs> really, right? But, you know, it, it's incredible advice. But we're not going to be able to do that if we're just waiting until stuff is so hard that we're desperate and we're really kind of grabbing onto the practice, hoping against all hope that it's going to get me out of here, right? Because what, what the practice is asking of you, what do you think practice asks of you? First started, asked that you actually do it. Okay. You know. Anybody else? What do you think practice asks of us? Why? Why are you here? Why are you here, Adrian? I think that practice asks for consistency so that we can be conditioning our thinking. So that we can be conditioning. Reconditioning our thinking. So he said it asks for consistency so that we can be reconditioning our thinking. Anything else? To persevere, okay? Presence. Presence. Mindfulness. Mindfulness. I saw some hands over here. Coming back to equanimity. So what's equanimity? What's equanimity? Maintaining balance. Maintaining balance. When there are opposites and extremes. Thank you. So all of those things that everybody said, you know, the consistency, mindfulness, equanimity, all of that. But, you know, how many people have all of that? Come on, right? Sometimes, sometimes. So the whole point of practice is we keep, you know, and, and the what the practice keeps asking of us is that, as, as Adrian said, consistency, so that we're constantly coming back over and over and over and over again to our object of meditation, whether it's the breath at the nostrils or in the body or present moment experiences, it changes and shifts from moment to moment to moment. We're, we're training the mind to be present and again, another teaching that part of the teaching last night was on a, a sutta of the Buddhas in, in which someone comes and asks him for the essence of the teaching, a, a, a teacher named Bahia, and he says, oh Bahia, here, and it's a long story, but the, the essence of it is he says, in the herd, in the seeing, in the scene there is only what is seen. In the heard, there is only what is heard. In the sensed, there is only what is sensed. 
in the, in the thinking there is simply the thought. And it's, it's, it's known as one of the Buddha's most profound teachings, right? And it's known as one of the most profound teachings because it's hard as hell to do, right? Because what are we used to? We're used to proliferation of the mind, right? We see something and immediately, so we see somebody coming and we like the person, we don't like the person, we remember what they said, we remember what they did, we don't like what they did, we project all of these ideas onto them and you know, before we know it, we're completely pissed off at this person. Really not even remembering that what we're angry about is not the person but our whole projection onto the person. And so the Buddha is constantly asking us to come back, come back, come back, come back to just no proliferation at all. This is hard. This is not an easy practice. And so if you're going to simply wait until things are difficult, it will never take hold. But if you are consistent enough and you, you establish a practice, you establish a practice in such a way that the mind doesn't have to think about how to shift its relationship to experience, but it actually knows from just this real, it's, it's really quite miraculous that this practice being, is a simple practice of simply coming back over and over and over again to presence, as someone said, that when stuff is flying around the room and you don't know what's going to happen and life becomes really uncertain and you're faced with all kinds of difficulty, the mind already is trained to do what it needs to do. Right? That's when you begin to see the power of your practice. That's when you know that this is a practice that really does free you from suffering. Because as, as someone said, the equanimity that is demanded of us in practice is, a demand, is, a, is, a, is an equanimity that comes back to balance even in the most difficult of circumstances. And if we are in balance when circumstances are difficult, our decisions come from clarity and compassion, not from resentment and confusion. And that's what we're doing. But it's not a simple matter, right? And that's why it's so difficult to get these really simple, ex really simple directions Sit and be present. Don't dwell on what's past. Don't dwell on what's to come. Just be here. Ha! Huh, no big deal. Okay. And then what does the mind do? Right? She shouldn't have said that to me. I should have answered it this way. Why didn't I do that? I was so stupid. She was so stupid. I can't stand her. I never could stand her anyway. Blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, nothing's really happening. It's just the breath, right? Oh, right, breath. Yeah, I really should have told her off, right? And before we know it, we're completely angry over some imagined insult or some imagined lost opportunity 
or some projected idea of what that person was thinking, which probably has nothing to do with reality or what they were actually thinking, right? But that we can't untrain that in a day or in one 45-minute sitting. The consistency is what builds power. If you do it over and over and over again, it becomes very powerful. And it's based on understanding. It's not based on controlling ourselves. It's based on understanding the underpinnings of the practice. It's, it's a comment more than a question, but I, I react in the opposite way. It's when I'm really upset that I'll shy away from sitting because I'm afraid of feeling the emotions. <laughs> and I'd much rather distract myself. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure it seems like your, your comments to John apply just as well. But it's just... So, okay. No, no, keep that mic. I have a few questions for you. So, what do you think practice is for? Um, all, all many things, but um, I guess what I'm looking for primarily is um, happiness and kindness. Happiness and kindness. So that's one half of life. Yes? There's another half of life that's unhappiness and cruelty. If we just want to take those two, there are a lot of other uh, dualities that we can talk about, but let's just take the ones that you chose. So, as I said, Patrul Rinpoche's teaching about not having utter aversion to adversity and developing cheerfulness Do you think that means that um, in developing the cheerfulness that we can then ignore adversity? No. So, so, So it's interesting then that the mind actually believes that in not sitting we can avoid the, um, what did you call it? The, the pain, okay, so that we can avoid the pain. Do you think that's true? Um, I, think, I think I can distract myself so that the pain is maybe postponed or so that the texture ah, of it postponed. is a <laughs> What a delightful thing. <laughs> Until when? Until it comes rushing in again. But it was a serious question because usually when we do that, we postpone it until it gathers such steam and such power inside from being compressed and suppressed and oppressed that when we do actually feel it, it's even that much more, that much stronger. What one of the beautiful things about practice is that if we really attain some stillness in practice. And it takes a while for the mind to become still. What we begin to notice the subtlety of experience. And the subtlety of experience is 
contained in a teaching about you know, what the three characteristics of experience are, that they are unsatisfactoriness, uh, impermanence, and insubstantiality. We cannot see that if we keep pushing down the pain. Because what it means is that we're not actually seeing experience as it's happening. So if we're having, if we're having a painful experience and we actually give it space and the ability to be there without our having, trying to control it or make it go away or to not feel it, we will never understand it. We'll never understand how pain turns into suffering. And we will never understand that pain is possible without suffering. As they say, pain is uh, inevitable, suffering is optional. Right? But if we stuff the pain down, the suffering is not optional. If we are, if we are able with some precision and gentleness to understand the pain, and we can only understand it through experience, it's not an abstract or um, uh, conceptual thing. It's a real visceral feeling that happens in the body as well as in the mind and in the heart. Only when we can fully feel that. And, you know, and, and I'm not saying that you have to like bring it on, right? With some kind of macho thing, but that you can actually allow it in small, small droplets by small droplets so that you begin to understand that the nature of life is this, is pain as well as pleasure and then it doesn't turn into suffering. Probably like most of us, um, I'm currently working with someone who, they have a lot of fun being cruel to other people. They have a lot of fun being? Cruel. Cruel. And I'm struggling with, um, my actions, you know, because I feel like I need to balance their injustice. And that usually is where I get myself into trouble. So... What do you mean by balance their injustice? Meaning oh, you by have trying to, to correct. You, you have to correct it. Right, by, mm -hmm. you know, letting them know that it's not right or what have you. So I'm struggling with how do I deal with that as I grow. How do you deal with what? The discomfort. Of? Of watching it happen. And so tell me a little bit more about your feeling that you have to balance it out. It's probably my sense of wanting to control the situation, but it's ah. also wanting to help So others. much fun, isn't it? Having yeah. to control the whole world. <laughs> How's that working out for you? Not very well. <laughs> So what's your question? I guess just letting go is, is pretty hard. Letting go is pretty hard. So mm -hmm. letting go, so, okay. So, so there's, a, there's a kind of fine question in there, I think, and tell me if I'm off track. 
But I, I think part of your question is how to deal with injustice while being a good Buddhist. Correct. <laughs> and, and feeling that really, and I'm totally like, you know, expanding your question and I may be completely off, you know, and it's okay, you can tell me if I am. But I think what I hear you saying is how do you accept it and at the same time be active in balancing injustice? Correct. Am, am I like over complicating your question? No, that's, that's right on it. That's okay. So what do you think? <laughs> so tell me about acceptance. Is acceptance passive? No. No, it's active. It's active. How is it active? Um, because I have to look at it and I have to consciously let it go. So if you see somebody um, really bullying somebody else, right? Right? In either physically, emotionally, mentally, in any way. Say you're walking on the street and you see some, you know, somebody beating up on somebody else. What do you think a good Buddhist does? I would stop them, yeah. You'd stop them? Yeah. So that's not at all passive. No. Is it? Right. So tell but me. The, okay. But in the workforce, it seems like those kinds of actions when it's a superior or a manager being uncruel can actually get you into trouble. So actually confronting someone who's an authority mm -hmm. who is being cruel. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? What do you do? Now, b before asking this what question, do I do now? what have you been doing? I stew. <laughs> you what? I just kind of stew about it and I get upset. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. yeah. Are there options? I mean, it all depends, you know. I mean, it all depends? Yeah, because if I say something, then I could lose my job. But if I don't say something, then it bothers me. Mm -hmm. So, so what I don't you, know what the So you've chosen is. so far to not say anything. No, I've said something. You've said something. So yeah. you haven't lost your job. I'm on probation for it. Oh, <laughs> you're on probation for it. Okay. Yeah. So how does that feel? It feels bad. Mm -hmm. Why does it feel bad? Because I've stuck up for someone and it's caused me to be in trouble. Mm -hmm. So what will you do next time? I guess just watch, I don't know. So you just watch. So what I'm hearing is that there, either you speak up or you don't speak up. Mm -hmm. Is there anything in between that? Or are there any radical options
So I'll tell you a story. <laughs> so this is a story from Ram Das, who some of you may know. So when he was living in India, he was studying with his, his teacher and he, he was living, I think, in, uh, in uh, Bombay. It was called Bombay at the time. And uh, he was living next to a firehouse. And every time he went to um, meditate, there would be a fire, right? So of course, woo, 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 <laughs> you know, the whole thing. And it happened, it was happening like every day, every time he sat down to meditate. So he went to his teacher and he said, what can I do? I mean, you know, so his teacher said, well, how long has this been going on? And he said, oh, you know, the whole time I've been in Bombay. And he said, well, have you managed to meditate? He said, well, not very much, you know, I, I try, but you know, the sirens go off. And his teacher said, have you considered moving away from the firehouse? So that's just a story. <laughs> and it's not to say that the only option you have is to quit but to say that we always have other options and to not get married to the idea that there is only this or that, but that there are a whole other, uh, op a whole other set of options that we may be overlooking and a situation like this is perfect for practice. And it's perfect for practice because it gives us an opportunity to see into how we think and how we relate to particular situations. And you may even look at how you're relating to that particular situation through the lens of your own experience growing up, your own family dynamic, you know, all kinds of different ways in which we get conditioned to uh, respond or react to particular situations based on the development of our personalities and our, our traumas and you know, all kinds of different um, factors. And part of practice is really learning how to step out of those usual patterns. And how do we do that? It's not easy because first we have to recognize them, which is what presence is all about. If we are present, we begin to recognize our patterns very clearly and we begin to really want to see them, right? So the pain, you know, as, as Lucy was saying about the pain, not being wanting to see the pain, sometimes it's very painful to look at our patterns, but it's really helpful because when we think, oh, there are only these two options, either I can do this or that, if I do this, I'm you know, damned, and if I do that, I'm damned, there may be all kinds of other options that are not seen because we become so stuck in our ways of relating. And practice is really um, supportive in allowing us to see our patterns and then uh, in seeing our patterns, 
we begin to see that there may be a myriad number of other options that are possible that are not quite so uh, bipolar. It's not just one, th you know, it's not a dualistic thing, but that there, is, there, there may be lots of other options that we have given the situation, given the personalities involved, given your economic situation, given your, you know, your career situation, all of that, and taking all of that into account. But it feels like a very painful place to be where you feel as if your only option is to shut up, right? That doesn't feel like a, a really heartful place to be. It doesn't feel like a very compassionate place for either you or your colleague or the person who is abusing your colleague, right? So it calls for a tremendous amount of compassion for everybody involved, starting with yourself and including the abuser but compassion doesn't mean that we're weak. Sometimes compassion can be really fierce. But then it has risks. And what does that mean, right? So there are a lot of different, um, different comp uh, pieces that have to fit together in the puzzle. But it's a beautiful opportunity for you to practice with seeing what's triggered you, what triggers you, what the situation is and, and what your usual ways and then trying to see if there are other possibilities, other ways of working with what has been served up to you. You're welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. We just have time for one small question. Everybody has big questions, not small ones. Yes. Um, this is question relates to uh, keeping one's attention to the breath. Keeping one's keeping attention. Keeping one's attention to the breath. You've oh. asked me that question before. I don't think so. Okay. All right. It's a different person. Okay. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so, I find that uh, part of the exercise for me is separating the experience of keeping of, tr of trying to keep one's attention from um, the breathing itself in other words uh, I, I find myself focusing on the, the exercise of trying to keep my attention and that seems to be a, a defense against the actual experience of just being being with the breath as opposed to having attention to the breath I'm sorry, being with breath is... Being a, with the breath, I, uh, it uh, seems, it is a goal of sorts, as opposed to, um, I'm sorry, this is sounding very abstract at this point. Uh, being with the breath as opposed to keep, attempting to keep one's attention to the breath. Being with the breath as opposed to keeping one's attention to the breath. I'm not sure I understand that distinction. I'm sorry, I don't think I can make it any clearer. Okay, um, it's, it's, I'm not quite sure what you're asking and I really want to answer your question, your, your question rather than making up a question. So tell me again, you're having trouble with the breath, with your attention wandering from the breath. 
Yes. Yes, and uh, the exercise of coming back to the breath, when you say coming back to the breath, I find I will come back to the breath by keeping conscious attention, my mind conscious attention to the process of breathing, but it feels as if what the, the higher goal, so to speak, is, is to just be with the breath in a way that doesn't involve having to uh, make an, a, an act of will, so to speak, okay. in keeping attention. Okay, so is your question really about the effort that's needed to do that and whether yeah, so that's appropriate? Yes, how to let go, basically. How to let go in, in that, in regard to, the, that I get, that's how long really ultimately the question. How long have you been practicing? A few months. Okay. Okay. Um, so, letting go, you know, we all hear about letting go and we think that sounds like such a brilliant idea, right? And, we, and so we, we yearn for that. We yearn for that ability to just be here. And yet that's a kind of, um, it's a kind of foreign experience, yes? Right? Because that's not how we've trained ourselves. We've really trained ourselves, you know, to see the person coming down the road and say, you know, blah, 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 and this, what she did this, and I did that, and, uh, and having a lot of proliferation about whatever the object is that we're working with, that we're either seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, tasting, or thinking about. And what can happen when we hear the instructions is this is that we understand it as being some kind of militant injunction right breathe in breathe out breathe in breathe out breathe in breathe out breathe in breathe out and you know you may not be saying that in your mind but in a way that's the attitude that comes up because we we we're good students, we're good little boys and girls, we've learned to be, right? So we've learned, or good little be people. So we've learned how to follow instructions. And I think this is like a really big obstacle that we have to overcome when we start practice. Because if we can't follow the instructions, we think something's wrong with us, right? So it seems so simple, we've been told. Notice the breath as it comes in. Notice the breath as it comes out. But actually, there's a whole secret thing going on, and I'm going to let you in on the secret, right? And the secret thing that's going on is that we know that when you try to do that, the first thing you notice is that you can't, right? And you notice that you can't, First of all, because you haven't been conditioned that way. But secondly, because the mind is designed to think. And so that's what it does, it thinks. This ability to pay attention in the present moment, once you notice that, oh, I don't have to, um, I don't ha the, the, the mind doesn't have to be on the breath at the nostrils in order for me to be in the present moment. Because as soon as the mind goes off the breath, I can actually pay attention to what the mind is doing. So the mind starts to think, 
I don't know what they're talking about because I can't do this. This is really hard. Everybody else is sitting around like a Buddha. Look at me. My mind's just like all over the place. Oh, dear. This is never... I think I'm going to try belly dancing, right? Because this is not happening for me. This is just not good, right? And suddenly, somehow, somewhere, we remember, oh, I can actually just pay attention to the process of thinking. I can actually see how here I was, minding my own business, trying to pay attention to the breath, and out of nowhere, this mind produced a thought. That's pretty miraculous. How the hell did that happen? I wasn't, I wasn't trying to think about, you know, this or that. I was just trying to pay attention to the breath, but the mind started thinking, well, let me pay attention to how it is when it thinks. We pay attention to how it is when it thinks. And then we start to pay attention to how the body feels when the mind is thinking. Then we pay attention to the content of the thought, not by getting carried away with it, but by just noticing, oh, this is a thought about my mother, how she used to tell me to sit in the corner and you know, not, not do this and not do that, and look at how I couldn't do that. I started to fidget and I started to do that, or, or whatever you know, your story is. So what begins to happen is the, the um, effort, and hopefully it's not over-efforting, but just the, even the slightest effort to sit and pay attention and to keep coming back, just with that, eventually, the mind becomes somewhat still, and hear me, somewhat still. It doesn't necessarily get completely still because, you know, it's the mind's still when you're dead, but we're still alive, right? So it's, it's a little too much to expect that the mind is just going to become a perfect flat line. But it's going to have these undulations that are possible to pay attention to. Because if you'll notice, the instructions are to pay attention in the present moment. So if a thought comes up, a loving thought comes up about your mom, well, that's a loving thought about your mom. If a hateful thought comes up about your mom, that's a hateful thought about your mom. And you're being able to see it without either becoming engaged in it or blaming yourself for it or judging yourself for it or deciding I like that good thought about my mom, I want to hold on to it or I hate that bad thought about my mom, I want to push it away, I don't want to feel it, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to know it. So the, as we were saying about equanimity, there is coming to some kind of balanced place with the ups and downs of life. And the ups and downs of life are happening more in the mind than they are anywhere else. As Mark Twain said, some of the worst disasters in my life never happened. Right? And we begin to learn all of that. But it takes some perseverance and persistence, as someone said. And it also takes some patience and determination and, and a, a kind of initial faith that this is worthwhile. Because the, in the beginning, it's difficult. And we think it shouldn't be difficult because it sounds so simple but it is difficult. And if we understand that, then we're able to carry on. And at some point, the mind does let go. 
I promise you. If we, if we keep practicing, at some point we experience that letting go of the mind. Where we, the scene, in the scene there is simply the scene. In the heard, there is just what is heard. In the sensed, there is just what is sensed. In the smelled, in the tasted, and in the thinking. Just what is there without the proliferation. And so we come to an end of proliferation and we're not so bound by the suffering of that as we were when we began. And it's a journey. And, we, and as long as our journey is, it's a continuous journey that continues to deepen. And, the, and power uh, begins to appear in the mind and in the heart as long as we're willing to put up with the undulations of the mind which were always there but we just never noticed them before because we weren't still enough. I hope that helps. You're welcome. Okay. Oh, I'm, I did go on, sorry. So thank you for your attention tonight and for your practice and for your patience and your perseverance and persistence and your integrity in, uh, in practice and your development and cultivation of kindness and compassion, all of which we've talked about tonight. When we practice together, we create a field of merit and of goodness. And instead of holding that for ourselves, we share it. We share it with all beings in the universe with whom we share this planet and this world. So we dedicate the merits of our practice to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being, and the awakening of all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy and peaceful, safe from harm, healthy and strong. And may all beings live with ease, free from suffering, and completely free. May it be so. Thank you so much, and travel well and travel safely. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.